Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello and welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science for this online event hosted by the Department of Social Social Policy here at the LSE. My name is Minou Shafiq and I'm the director of the school and I'm so pleased here to welcome Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatton to the LSE this afternoon. Beverly is President Emerita of Spelman College and the author of Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. She's a longtime teacher, scholar, administrator and thought leader in higher education. She was the 2013 recipient of the Carnegie Academic Leadership Award and the 2014 recipient of the American Psychological Association Award for Outstanding Lifetime Contributions to Psychology. Dr. Tatum holds a BA degree in psychology from Wesleyan University, an MA and a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Michigan, and an MA in religious studies from Hartford Seminary. So this event is gonna be a conversation between me and Beverly about her book, which has been a perennial bestseller on the psychology of racism. Now in its 20th edition and published in the UK for the first time this year. For those of you using Twitter in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Tatum. And this online event is being recorded and will be made available as a podcast afterwards. As usual, after we have a conversation, there'll be a chance for you to put your questions to the speaker. To submit those, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and those will be submitted to me, and I will read them out. We're particularly keen to hear from our students and our alumni around the world. But now I really would like to turn to Beverly so we can hear more from her. So let me start uh, by reiterating my welcome and how delighted we are to have you at LSE. And for those who haven't yet read your book, I'm sure they will, I wanted to just start by asking you to kind of summarize the main arguments in it. Sure. Well, let me begin by saying I'm honored to be in this conversation with you, Manoush, and I'm very excited to um, be speaking with the LSE audience. And also, I hope we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about your book what we owe each other, a new social contract for a better society, because I think the ideas in it very much connect to what I've been writing about. I think it might be helpful to our listeners to know that I wrote the first version of my book in 1997, which is now more than 20 years ago. And I wrote it then really coming from my position as a faculty member teaching psychology. I started teaching a course on the psychology of racism early in my career in 1980. And 16, 17 years later, I had learned a lot, not only about the subject matter, but about students' responses to it. What it means for young people, and not just young people, but folks who haven't necessarily thought much about racism to begin to think about what it is, how it impacts them directly, in terms of their sense of identity, what it means to think of yourself as a black person in a race conscious society, or you are a white person in a race conscious society, um, or or a person of color, broadly speaking. And how does racism impact how we interact with each other, and then ultimately what we can do about it. I sometimes like to summarize my book as having three parts, what, so what, and now what. 
what is racism? How do we understand that? So what does it mean in terms of how we engage with each other and ourselves in terms of our sense of identity? And now what? Now what can we do about it? If we see racism as a problem in our society, how might we address it? The title, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? That opening question came from the fact that in the 80s and early 90s, I spent a lot of time visiting schools in the US, talking to teachers and administrators about race relations in their schools, how talking with educators in particular about how they might talk to their own students, particularly in high schools, about the subject of racism, how they might teach about it, drawing on what I had learned in my teaching experience at the college level. And when I went to those schools, particularly if they were in the process of desegregation, uh, in the US schools have been segregated and many communities were trying to desegregate their schools, bring black and white students and other students of color together in the same schools. And particularly in the North where I was living, the black students were always in the minority in those desegregating schools. And the administrators of those schools would ask me when I came to do my workshops, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? It was a very common question. And so when I decided to write this book, I used it as an introduction to conversations that we need to have. That was just one of many questions that people would ask, but it speaks to um, the observations that most people make on their, in their daily lives about racism in action, but without always understanding what the underlying dynamics are. And that's what I was trying to explain in my book. Interesting. So you wrote the book initially in 1997, you updated it in 2017. And in the prologue you have, you talk about, obviously things have changed, but you talk about three setbacks, which really struck me. One was the anti-affirmative action backlash, two was the impact of the 2008 financial crisis, and three was the phenomenon of mass incarceration. Could yes. you talk a little bit about how those three big setbacks uh, affected the psychology of racism? Absolutely. Um, let me say that those three social um, issues, right, the affirmative action being um, an initiative that really was launched in the 60s by then President Lyndon Johnson and carried into the 70s and 80s, um, began to be pushed back against with legislation limiting affirmative action programs, um, real resistance to it being described as, quote, reverse racism. I, of course, debunked that description in my book, but the um, that was one. Uh, let me say this differently. Let me just say that one of the ideas that I often think about and is represented in my book is that Dr. King wrote in his very last book in 1968, the fact that after every period of social progress, there's pushback against that progress. And so if we think of affirmative action as an example of social progress, then there was pushback against it. Uh, and that pushback continues in terms of the anti-affirmative action policies that were enacted um, mm -hmm. during that 20 year window. The um, issue of mass incarceration also happened during that time. One might see it and ha it has been described as a pushback against greater freedoms of African-Americans. As the civil rights movement moved forward, 
there were those who were pushing back against it, talking about the need for greater um, control against crime, um, not necessarily speaking uh, in specifically racial terms, but using um, references to crime as kind of code language or dog whistles, as we call them. Mm -hmm. um, and even someone who was seen as progressive on issues of race, like Bill Clinton, um, was an advocate of tougher crime policies, particularly as it relates to drug-related crimes. And in the United States, we certainly saw um, the so-called war on drugs really being a war on black and brown people, incarcerating um, black and brown citizens at a much higher rate than white citizens, even for the similar crimes. Um, differential drug policies, where if you're using one form of powdered, if you use powdered cocaine, you'd get one set of sentences. If you're using crack cocaine, you get a much stronger sentence, and that was much more common in communities of color. So these um, examples are just um, part of the question I was trying to answer in the prologue. When, when I told people I was writing an update in my book, I was often asked, well, are, aren't things getting better? Isn't it, isn't, aren't things better? And so whether you think things are better or not really depends on, I think, your generational lens. If you were born in 1954 as I was, um, is society better in 2021 than it was in 1954? I think yes, the answer to that is yes. I was born in the Jim Crow South. My parents were educated um, in HBCUs and my father, when he wanted to pursue his doctorate, could not attend the university in his own city. Let me well, just take you a little, a little bit uh, closer to now. I mean, you talked about how have things got better. Um, and I think, I think if we look at the present, research on media and language and civic conversation on race is very different now than it was even five years ago when you yeah. did the book. And yeah. I wanted to ask you, really, if you were rewriting your prologue today, what would you say about these recent developments in terms of the conversation on race, really post Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, yeah. Trump, yeah. et cetera, the last couple of years? What are your reflections on that? Yeah, um, well, let me just say, I, I think your audience heard me say this, I'm not quite sure where we lost the connection, but one of the points I was making was that after every period of social progress, there's pushback against that progress. And if in the context of the United States, you think about um, progress toward greater civil rights as sort of reaching a climax with the election of President Barack Obama, first African-American to serve in that role, um, and the significance of eight years of his leadership in the White House, you know, a black family living in the White House, symbolically very significant. And then the election of Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, as in some ways the antithesis of the Barack Obama presidency, um, as really an example of pushback against that progress. And if we think about the leadership style, for example, of uh, Donald Trump, using Twitter, social media, um, sort of speaking in hashtags, um, and his rhetoric, his um, pejorative rhetoric in reference to groups that he would consider other, um, whether that is 
Latinx immigrants, black people, sometimes women um, as a broad category, if we think about that and then think about the role of the leader. One of the things I talk about in my book that is very important is to understand that leadership does matter. We as human beings are inclined to um, travel in groups. You know, we are social animals and we do um, pay attention to what the leader does. And so uh, the leader defines who's in and who's out of our circle. Um, leaders can draw a circle very widely in a very inclusive way or very narrowly. Um, and when, and if we think of, um, I think of President Obama's leadership as one in which the circle was drawn in quite a wide way, very inclusive. Certainly that seemed to be his intent, um, but we can see in uh, President Trump's style of leadership, drawing the circle very narrowly um, and, you know, clearly drawing us them lines. And that rhetoric has certainly influenced social relationships in the context of the US, but I would argue even beyond, you know, the borders of the United States. And a lot of that being conveyed through social media, the whole notion of so-called false fake news, right? That phrase we hear a lot today introduced by uh, <laughs> President Trump, um, the, the whole, the use of social media for not just misinformation, but disinformation, you know, mm -hmm. using it to spread stuff that the author knows is not true. Um, all of these things have shifted um, the social climate, I think, in very significant ways. And the other thing about it, apart from political leadership, is just how people get their information. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up in a time when there were three channels on television. ABC, CBS, NBC, you know, people watched the nightly news and basically got the same version, no matter what channel they were watching. But today, people can curate their information and get it from lots of different sources. And the places where I get my information may be very different from where my neighbor is getting her information. So the kind of shared knowledge, shared understanding of the world and how it's operating is not, um, cannot be assumed. Mm -hmm. And that makes it hard to, harder to find common ground. I think talking about issues of race has always been difficult um, mm -hmm. in the United States. And in my recent um, time, I had the opportunity to spend uh, several weeks, several days in the UK uh, in the month of November. And in the conversations I had with folks um, during those visits, let me know that talking about race is hard in the UK too. <laughs> you know, that there are lots of um, silences and that silence is really what I think connects the past and the present. You know, there's a lot of silence in the past. There's a lot of silence in the present, but we won't be able to change the future unless we can learn how to break that silence. And really, so I like to say, you can't solve a problem that you can't talk about. You say a little bit more about that because you know conversations about race have have become very polarized. People are either shouting at each other or avoiding the subject. And could you say a little bit more about what what it takes to have healthy, constructive conversations about about this issue? Absolutely, I like to actually think about it in a developmental way. Perhaps because I'm a psychologist, but um, 
because conversations about race really begin very early in our lives and the observations that toddlers make. You know, babies notice difference and as soon as they have language, they start to comment on it. And so when we hear a two or three-year-old ask, you know, mommy, why is that man so dark? Um, that's, a, that's an observation of human difference. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be seen as prejudicial or biased in any way. It's simply curiosity. But what the parent mm -hmm. often does in that moment, let's imagine they're in the grocery store together. That white child is asking a question about a dark-skinned person they see. The parent is likely to say, shh, right, to hush the child for fear that maybe they are causing embarrassment or they feel embarrassed. But what that communicates to the child is, shh, don't, don't talk about that. Don't mention it. Don't comment on it. And it suggests that maybe there's something wrong with it, right? Not that it's just human variation, like some people are blonde and some people have brown hair and some people have red hair and some people have freckles and some people don't. I mean, there's lots of human variation, but the focus on um, those characteristics that we associate with the racial categories that have developed over time, whether that's skin color, hair texture, eye shape, etc we um, convey to young people at a very early age that this is not to be talked about. If yeah. you um, go to uh, an event like the one we're having now, let's imagine we were all there together in person. I often like to ask a series of questions, which I'll just quickly pose here and the listeners can think about them. And the first question is, think about your own earliest race-related memory. If you ask an audience full of folks about that, most people will quickly identify something that they remember and they will tell you that they are remembering something usually from early school age, at the age of five or six or seven. And then if you ask what emotion is attached without even knowing the incident, just what emotion is attached to this experience that you recall, people will say things like, Sometimes they say curiosity or love if it was in a friendship, but most of the time it's words like confusion, fear, sadness, anger, anxiety, embarrassment, shame. These are strong words. And then if you ask, okay, well, did you talk to anyone about this incident at the time that it occurred? A caring adult, a parent or a teacher, someone like that. Almost always, the majority of folks in the audience will say, no, I did not. I had no conversation with anyone about it. But if you know five or six or seven-year-olds, what you can say pretty universally about them is that they're chatty. They tend to talk a lot and freely about whatever's on their minds. They haven't learned to uh, filter or censor themselves. And so it is somewhat counterintuitive to see a group of adults tell you, I still remember it decades later. I can tell you what emotion was attached to it, but no, I didn't talk about it to anyone. And then the question is, why not? Well, often people will say sometimes it was because the adult, the parent or the teacher was the source of the confusion, the source of the incident. But even if that's not the case, let's imagine it was you know, with a playmate or something. 
there is still some deep awareness learned early that the adults don't want to hear about this particular topic, that this is a subject that will either be looked down, you might get in trouble or, you know, just it's, you're not supposed to talk about it. Somehow they've learned that. And if that is the case in childhood, and we imagine that that set of circumstances happens repeatedly, different incidents, but similar outcomes, strong feelings, no conversation. People are taught to bury their awarenesses. And as a consequence, then you talk to adults who will say, I don't see race. I don't notice racism. I don't think it exists Um, because not because it doesn't, because they have been trained by their social context not to pay attention. Very interesting. Very interesting. I still remember when my children were exactly that age, around five, uh, a friend of mine who's black came over and her, her family name is white. And they very innocently asked me, but mommy, she's not white. She's black. How can that be? (laughs) It was a very innocent, as you say, completely, genuinely open, curious question. And, uh, and, uh, and we talked about it. (laughs) Yes. Let me turn uh, to the publication of your book in the UK. It's, it's just coming out for the first time. And you mentioned you were in the UK in November. So I had a chance to discuss these issues here. Um, how much read across from American culture, which is so widespread around the world, is there on racial politics? And what were your impressions on the debate about race in the UK, if you had a chance to form any? Yes, well, I did form some. And, and let me say I was um, fortunate to participate in a conference at the beginning of my visit uh, titled Black Britain and Beyond. Um, a conference organized by uh, Reverend Dr. Professor Keith McGee and his associates. And what and at the time of the conference, it coincided with the publication of a book called Black British Lives Matter, mm-hmm. um, edited by Lenny Henry and Marcus Ryder, um, a book I would highly recommend. I found it very interesting both to hear the conversations and also to read the book. But what I what I noted was that um, the conversations, it seems to me that conversations that are taking place in the UK are maybe just getting started. For example, uh, conversations about representation in the curriculum. You know, that's a conversation that's been going on in the United States for quite some time, but seems like a relatively new conversation um, as I perceived it uh, in the UK. I also think that the demographics matter in this context. So um, one of the dynamics in the United States over the last 20 years has been the population change. So when I was born in 1954, the U.S. population was 90% white, 10% everyone else. Um, If you are a baby born today in the United States, um, you are likely to not be in a majority, no matter who you are, right? If you are um, a white baby being born, you're probably going to be less than 50% of the population. We're moving from a majority society to a truly pluralistic one. Um, And for in the United States, I believe that is fueling quite a lot of the racial anxiety that we see being um, manifested 
among the white population that loss of majority status is threatening to many people. Mm -hmm. um, in the UK, of course, the black and brown population is much smaller than in the US, that's my perception, but, the, um, but it is growing. And that notion, um, the sort of anti-immigrant rhetoric that I know has been part of the political climate in the UK, it seems to me is not unlike what is happening in the US in response to changing demographics and economic uncertainty. Yeah. Let, me, let me ask you about the issue you just raised about the curriculum and talking about racial education. Uh, it's still very hotly debated. The recent election in Virginia in the US where a Republican upset a former Democratic governor uh, turned on what children were being taught in schools about race. And yes, what role do you think the state should be playing in shaping racial education? And uh, both kind of at the early, you know, in, at the kind of primary, secondary level. And it would be also interesting to draw you a little bit on your thoughts about uh, higher education on that topic. Yes. Well, one of the things that um, I learned early on in my teaching experience, teaching college students. Um, as I mentioned, I started teaching a course on racism in 1980. And one of the things that my students repeatedly said was why didn't we learn about this sooner? You know, why didn't we get any information about this in high school or middle school? You know, why did we have to wait until we were in college to understand this important social issue? And the silence about it in schools was troubling to me. And at the time I began to ask teachers, educators who were working in high schools, why is it that you're not talking about these issues? Why is it that it's not included in your social studies classes or you know, in history classes? Why aren't we talking about the racial history um, in the United States? And the answer I got from those teachers, most of whom in the US are white, most teachers in the United States are white people, mostly white women. And, um, and the answer I repeatedly got was, we don't know how. Nobody taught us. This is not a subject we feel comfortable with. Um, I don't want to cause conflict in my classroom. These are not things that I'm comfortable talking about. But, but um, and so that is actually why I started doing the workshops that I started doing to sort of help those teachers learn how to facilitate conversations about race in their classrooms that would be productive. Um, having said that, even when we're not talking about race or racism, we are shaping racial education. You know, there is- yeah, By not talking about it. Yes, mm -hmm. there's a message in the silence, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're teaching history that does not include the contributions of people of color, you are reinforcing ideas of white supremacy. Um, that may not be your goal, but that's what you're doing because the, uh, as a student of mine once said, a white male student in one of my classes said, it's not my fault black people don't write books. And, um, and of course, he was speaking from a limited base of knowledge because he didn't know about the books that black people had written, he assumed there weren't any. Um, that is a kind of education that is flawed without question, but is nonetheless conveying messages about 
who contributes to the society and who doesn't, right? Um, inaccurate as that might be. So when, when people say don't teach about race, we have to say we are always teaching about race. When we are being silent, we're teaching. And so um, the push today is about teaching a more complete, a more honest history, a more honest understanding of how um, our society came to be the way it is. There are facts that we can share. Um, you know, they're not, you know, people can have different opinions, but um, some things are just factual, right? You know, that, that presumably are not arguable. Um, and so, so I think that's the challenge. There's a sort of sense that some, some curricula is neutral and, you know, bias-free. There's no such thing. It, you know, the, the, the only thing that we can be is clear. You know, as I like to say, it's not values neutral. Let's be values clear. Let's be clear that we're trying to um, teach a full history. We're not trying to teach people to hate their country or to hate a group of people or to mistrust anyone. We're trying to help people understand how did we get here? And if we truly understand how we got here, then we have a chance of going somewhere better. I mean, just a follow-up question on that in terms of being able to have conversations and getting people who might not feel comfortable talking about race to talk about it. There's a little bit of a stay in your lane ideology. Yes. Uh, and which says people from that background can't speak truthfully about these issues. How do you, what do you think about that and how that has affected our ability to have conversations across society around race? Well, I think that that is, um, it's an interesting comment. I mean, you know, we don't say you have to be, you know, from Britain to teach Shakespeare. Um, you know, we don't say that you have to um, have lived in France to learn to speak French or to uh, you know, study French literature. Um, so I think it's a little bit of um, an escape clause that people give each other to say, you know, this makes me uncomfortable and therefore here's my reason for not wanting to do it. I, I do think that everybody's voice needs to be included. Um, it would not make sense to um, teach about an experience. Let's talk about, you know, African-American history in the United States, um, or not even history, let's talk about current events. If someone wants to teach about current events and hasn't experienced um, police violence um, and yet knows someone who has or someone who studied it, bring those voices into the classroom. You know, when I was teaching about racism, of course I had my own experience but that's not what my class was about. It was about the scholarship that others had done and, um, and helping students understand that. But there came a time when I realized they needed to hear from white people about the subject. I'm not a white person, right? I'm an African-American woman living in the United States. And most of my students at the time were white students. And one of the questions they had was, how do I, as a white person, start to speak up about racism? I could certainly point them in a direction. 
but they found it tremendously valuable for me to invite a white anti-racist activist into my classroom so that they could ask her questions. And they asked, one of the first questions they asked, which I found tremendously interesting, was, did you lose friends? When you started to speak up about these issues, did you lose friends? And her answer to that question was, my friendships changed. You know, there were some people who didn't understand what I was talking about, didn't want to understand. But on the other hand, there were lots of people who welcomed this conversation and those became my new friends. So um, there was not, um, but I found it interesting that that's what students were worried about. They were worried about the social isolation that mm -hmm. comes from challenging the status quo or that can come. Let me ask you one last question from me on higher education and then I'll turn to some of the questions from the audience. Um, so you've been a higher education leader for decades. Um, universities obviously have a very special role in terms of fostering public debate, shaping public debate and shaping the next generation. And yet universities have become areas of great social conflict, uh, particularly in the US, but also in the UK. Uh, and in many ways, those who go to universities and those who don't go to universities are inhabiting different worlds. How do you think universities can do a better job going forward of enabling people to talk about race and overcoming the legacy of racism? I think there's a great opportunity in the space of higher education. Certainly this is true in the US. My perception is it may also be true in the UK. You'll let me know if I am wrong about this, but in the US, because there's so much residential segregation still, um, that coming to the university is often for many people, the most diverse learning environment they've been in previously. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's a unique opportunity to engage with people whose life's experiences are different from their own. That said, people still tend to flock with those with whom they feel most comfortable, with whom they are most familiar. But the university allows for structure. You can create structures where people have the opportunity to come together specifically for the purpose of talking about these kinds of issues in a way that is facilitated constructively. I always like to point to the University of Michigan as an example of this. They have a very well-developed program in intergroup relations, which is built around creating dialogue opportunities, cross-group dialogue opportunities over the course of a semester that allow students to really tackle some thorny issues in a way that is mutually respectful and that ultimately leads to deeper understanding and fosters cross-group relationships, friendships. The research shows that students who have participated in this program are much more likely to be civically engaged after they graduate, more likely to live in racially mixed neighborhoods, more likely to um, vote, more likely to have, um, more likely to interrupt the cycle of segregated life in the United States. So that is uh, an example of the university using its power of convening and mm -hmm. creating learning structures that can be very helpful. But I, if I might say one more thing about it, the, your question was, you know, all those people who don't go to university, 
what happens to those folks? Are they being left behind? And I think that there is an opportunity, again, to use the intellectual capital of the university to expand into communities to facilitate those kinds of opportunities among folks who may not be registered for courses, but who want to have the opportunity to engage with these ideas, much as LSE is promoting this webinar. Um, similarly, there's opportunities to take learning to communities that might not otherwise have access. Yeah, very good point. And you, the final chapter of your book has some wonderful, hopeful examples of how different organizations and universities have have fostered those kinds of uh, opportunities for people. So it's a, it's, it's, it ends on a very positive note. Let me turn to some questions from the audience. Uh, and I'm gonna start with a question from Jemima Lumbu, who asks, how long do you believe this type, this type of attitudes, these types of attitudes will remain? Do you believe these things will happen for every generation's lifetime? Well, I think it's important to say that what we think of today as racism did not always exist. We do know that, you know, as I said, human beings are social animals. We gather in groups. And of course, we know that there's a long history of conflict between groups. But the idea of racial hierarchies, um, you know, a human hierarchy with white people on the top, uh, black people at the bottom, and shades of color in between, um, that that kind of racial hierarchy is um, a product of religious, philosophical um, thinking that occurred a few centuries ago, but has not always existed. And so it is certainly possible to move beyond that kind of thinking. And there are lots of people who I think are trying to move us in that direction. Yeah. It's hard to imagine, I have to say, it's hard to imagine that we will completely eradicate bias, bigotry, discrimination of one kind or another. We know that we have um, a long human history of these kinds of behaviors across centuries. But it is also possible to evolve in, I mean, if we just look at what has happened in terms of the roles of women, for example, relative to um, you know, societal understanding of gender roles, we see change as possible. And certainly we've seen change as possible even as it relates to race relations. But again, after every period of social progress, there's pushback against that progress. What gives me hope is that even if we think about, you know, pushback against progress, it's possible to move forward again. And that forward motion comes as the result of decisions that each of us make. Yeah. Can I ask you, I've worked on diversity issues in many, many organizations in my career. And as you say, we have made progress in many areas. In my experience, it's been easiest to make progress on women, on LGBT issues, and hardest on race in almost every organization I've worked in. Why do you, do you observe a similar pattern? And I mean, I, I, part of it I think is related to class. So women can be upper and middle class and LGBTQ plus can be. And so the intersection between class and, and 
diversity, I think, is a bit of a part of the story. But do you observe that as well? And why do you think that is? I do observe it. And I think it's because we have women in our families. We have LGBTQ people in our families. We don't necessarily have people of other racial groups in our families. Um, You know, so the man who wants to advocate for his daughter starts to think more broadly about women's rights. The person whose child has come out as gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender becomes an advocate um, because Mm -hmm. someone they care about is being affected. But if we live in communities that are separated by color or separated by language or separated um, by some of the other markers that we use to determine these racialized categories, um, you might not know anyone in that category. In fact, in the United States, one of the statistics I cite is that 75% of white people in a national study said they had no friends of color, no acquaintances of color. Basically their entire social network was white. And so if you don't have someone that you feel connected to, um, it's hard to see them as part of your group. I think this is one of the points that you make so clearly in your book. you know, what we owe each other is that it's easy to see a social contract or to have a social contract with people you see as like yourself. But if you are viewing a group of people as being very different from you or somehow not as worthy as you, it's harder to forge a social contract that would benefit all. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And one of the arguments that, uh, for example, why you have very generous social contracts in, say, the, in Northern Europe, which yes. has historically been very homogeneous societies, is it's been easier where people all kind of look the same. Whereas in the United States, which is a very diverse society, you know, it was harder to persuade people to be willing to share with people who look different than themselves. Yes. And so you have to build an, an identity which transcends race. Yes. Um, let me turn back to questions from the audience. Kate Rowley, project manager from Pilot Light, asks, what is your perspective on the lack of education on colonialism in UK schools? How much do you think that undermines more realistic understanding and empathy for minoritized ethnicities? I think it, it's, I think it has a lot to do with that in this sense. You know, if you wonder where are these folks coming from? You know, why are they here? If you don't understand the history of, you know, that island nation to Great Britain, if you don't understand the connection of, you know, this, um, you know, I said island nation thinking of the Caribbean, but you can think of India and Pakistan. And, you know, if you think about, or Africa, if you think about the, all the places where um, the sun never set on the British empire, the, um, and the relationship and the extraction of wealth and um, labor that was part of that story. If you don't understand that, then it's like, well, who are these people and what are they doing here? You know, it, it, it doesn't um, make sense to you. So I think leaving that information out does a disservice to all. Yeah. 
So let me turn to a question from Shara Kennedy. As an international African-American exchange executive graduate student at LSE from Atlanta, the greatest challenge that I have had is connectivity and access to economic resource. As a consequence, lack of funding for pro, for lack of assistance to funding for, pro, for my program threatens my ability to remain uh, and to focus on my education. How can LSE have a more diverse population if these hurdles continue to present? What are your thoughts for increasing scholarship, visibility, resources, and connectivity to help students such as myself in order to have access even to sit at the LSE cafeteria? Well, this is, of course, a problem at every institution. You know, when I served as president of Spelman College, my number one priority was trying to increase financial aid so that students who were ready and able to do the work could in fact stay and complete their degree, you know, the worst outcome in my mind is to take on debt and not be able to complete your degree. So the idea of access and affordability is an issue not unique to LSE or Spelman. Every higher education institution struggles with this, um, in part because part of the social contract in the United States right now is not um, one that guarantees access to education beyond the 12th grade. Yeah. You know, that um, I know that there are some European countries and even in the, in the UK, um, there is some financial support. If it's not free, there's at least some support for every student who wants to go right. to higher education to have access. That is not true in the United States. And one of the things that is really, I think, important for us as um, nations, you know, as a global community, is what investment are we willing to make in the next generation? Because it's not, um, if we don't make that investment, we will certainly regret it in the future. Yeah, quite agree, very much agree. Next question is from Konstantinos Christou, who's an affordable housing campaigner in London. In your work as an educator and academic, have you seen the increased consciousness of nuances like colorism, decolonization, intersectionality, multiracialism, shape conversations about race, particularly in majority white spheres? Certainly intersectionality is very important. Um, it's a very important part of the conversation. Um, decolonization is, you know, certainly there too. Um, recognizing, I guess what I want to say in broadly in response to the whole question is the understanding that we all have multiple identities, right? Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? You know, I can describe myself as a female. I can describe myself as African-American. I can describe myself as heterosexual, able-bodied. Um, identify as Christian, you know, someone raised in a middle-class family. I, all of these identities shape my experience. Um, my ex uh, As a light-skinned Black person, my experience is different than someone who identifies as African-American, but is whose skin is much darker. People respond to me differently than they do to darker-skinned people. I'm aware of that. And so the... Um, so it just speaks to the complexity of these issues. I do think that it's important that we recognize that there is not any universal experience. We don't want to um, reduce people to single categories. That's insufficient in terms of capturing their lived experience. We have to look at it through a complex lens. And the, um, 
the various categories that the questioner was just raising are part of that complexity. We have to be able to talk about colorism, for example, within communities of color, we, which to, in my mind, I talk about in the book as um, an example of internalizing racism, you know, to the extent that those, um, that notion of white supremacy manifests itself through colorism in those communities. Um, so I would leave it there, I guess, but to just say those multiple identities have to be considered in order to fully understand somebody's experience. And I think this will probably be the last question we'll have time for from Duan Kim. Is the pushback that we see after a period of social progression a result of intentional sabotage from certain groups or are there other explanations for this phenomenon? I think, you know, change is hard for people. Um, people feel threatened. There's a concern that their status is somehow going to be lost um, mm -hmm. or, you know, that there is loss in change, not recognizing that there is gain in change as well. An excellent book that is, um, speaks to this very well is by Heather McGee. It's called The Sum of Us, Sum mm -hmm. as an S-U-M, The Sum of Us. And in it, she talks about what she calls the solidarity dividend. There's this notion that, you know, if one group progresses, another group must lose something, that it's a zero sum gain. But in her book, she gives lots of examples of how everybody can benefit when they come together to try to make things more equitable for those who are being disadvantaged. Very interesting, very interesting. I might be able to sneak in one more question if I can, uh, from Mary, Mary Pau Gueda, who's an LSE MSc student from Dallas, Texas. I agree with your observation that UK higher education is in the beginning stages of incorporating intersectionality, race education, and decolonization into the curriculum in compare, compared to the US. But despite different contexts and imperialist histories, what can UK higher education learn from US institutions? Well, I think because um, the U.S. has been working at it for a longer period of time, you know, there are lessons to be learned. For example, you know, I made reference to the work on intergroup dialogue at the University of Michigan. I think that would be a great um, lesson to be shared. Um, I think the understanding that comes from uh, faculty recruitment and retention, you know, one of the conversations I had while I was in the U.K. was with colleagues who are trying to uh, increase the diversity among the faculty and yeah. struggling to figure out how to do that in a context that is not experienced with that. And there are certainly institutions in the U.S. that have been quite successful in their ability to expand. There are certainly con institutions in the United States that need to work on it, too. I don't want to suggest that every institution has figured it out, but there are some that have been quite successful and sharing again, those lessons I think would translate quite well. Yeah, absolutely. That's one thing that we've certainly struggled with. And I think we've decided to take a really, you know, long-term view and say, we need to grow the pipeline. And so we've earmarked PhDs, particularly in, in those disciplines where people of color are underrepresented and to have PhD scholarships dedicated to grow a new, you know, a, a generation of new scholars who will, be more representative of society, um, but but it's a it's a it's a, it's it's a long it's a long and a long and challenging path. Yeah. Okay, I think we are almost out of time. Beverly, is there anything else uh, you wanted to say before we close? As 
I hope I hope the audience uh, gets a sense of of how rich your book is, the deep psychological insights that you bring to thinking about racism, which I think is very distinctive. Uh, and the fact that your book is now available in the UK at a time when the debate about race is, is definitely very, uh, very lively. Are there any sort of final words you wanted to, to leave us with? Well, I would say this, you know, one of the, I, I referenced several times this notion of pushback against social progress. Um, that insight comes to me from Dr. King's last book, which is titled, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? It was published in 1968. It's an old book, of course, but it seems quite relevant to today's moment. And at the very end of the book, he says that each of us has a choice to make, chaos or community, that the, we can choose to build community um, through our efforts to be inclusive, to treat, um, to, to develop equitable social policies, um, to advocate for um, a more just social contract, to use your language, mm -hmm. uh, but we have to make that choice. And each of us has to you know, decide, is what I'm doing now leading to greater community or contributing to greater chaos? I think we can all choose for greater community. And if we do, we'll see progress again. Oh, well, thank you, Beverly. You couldn't have ended on a more hopeful and inspiring note. So I think we're all, we're all with you on community. And thank you very much for talking to our community at the LSE. We'll be sharing this widely through our podcasts. And uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for your book. Thank you for your leadership. Uh, and thank you for sharing both of those with us. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.